Let's look first of all at the book of Acts chapter 10, verse 38. And the apostle Peter is at Cornelius' house, and he's doing some personal ministry there. And um, he's describing the ministry of Jesus. And he said, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I want you to look at these words, who went about doing good. Say that with me who went about doing good. That's really what personal ministry is all about. It's just about going around doing good and finding good things to do for people, whatever that looks like. Uh, whatever um, shape or form that needs to take, I, all you have to do to have a personal ministry is just go about doing good things for people around you. And uh, without any criteria of qualification, just seeing a need, seeing an opportunity, and meeting that need. I had such an opportunity recently of uh, some unbelievers that the Lord has put in my path, and uh, I'm working diligently with the Holy Spirit to see them come to Christ. They have a son that uh, has been in prison for a number of years I've never met, and uh, finally his release date came. And uh, the family was uh, excited to receive their son back. And so uh, the Lord put it in my spirit of the prodigal son and how that the father was waiting for the prodigal son. And, and uh, he put a robe on his back and a ring on his finger and uh, shoes on his feet and they killed the fatted calf. And I really just shared that message with them to give them an idea of how to respond to a son coming home. And at the end of that, I talked about how that, you know, uh, what each of those things mean. And I wasn't preaching to them. It was just a casual conversation. Um, I was just sharing a few things, and I could tell I had their undivided attention. And so, um, and I said, you know, the last thing that the father did, he bought that boy a new pair of shoes. I think he was trying to say to him, son, you've got places to go and things to do, and you're going to need a new pair of shoes. And I handed him enough money to go buy that boy a brand new pair of shoes when he got out of prison. Just uh, because I've been blessed and I could do that. And because I saw it as an opportunity just to do good for someone. A young man I've never even met. Don't know the man. But the point is, it was just an opportunity God put in my path to, to do good for someone. And to sow a seed of goodness in their life that who knows the eternal result of that good thing. And so if you want to say, you know what, I do want to be a positive impact on my world. I want to be a bold witness for Christ. I want to be a soul winner. I want to know that my life is blessing someone else. Then the words that Peter chose to describe Jesus needs to describe you and me. He went about doing good. Whatever that looks like, just go about doing good and see what opportunities might open up to you. Somebody say yes. yes. You know, there's not going to be anybody in heaven, no soul in heaven without human fingerprints. No one just goes to heaven without somehow being impacted by another human being, another believer. Every one of us here today have been uh, impacted by people in our lives that helped us make the decision to follow Christ. It may have been yesterday or many years ago, but all of us have people in our lives 
that were majorly influential in us becoming a follower of Jesus. I want you to take a moment. I want you to think about who the person or persons might have been that most influenced you to be a Christian. I want you to get their names in your mind because I'm going to ask you to tell it to me in just a few moments. The fact is, most people in the church today were influenced by their parents. When you ask them who influenced you most, most people like myself will tell you unquestionably, my parents were the most influential people in my life that helped me to decide that I wanted to be a Christian in my life. Parents play an important role, more so than everybody else in the world, if we parents model Christianity, model the love of Christ, we are most likely to influence our children to be Christians as their parents. So parents are very, very important to people making a decision to be Christians. The second group that I see are major influences in your life, best friends, co-workers, coaches, teachers, Whoever was a primary influencer in your life, these primary influencers encourage you and tip the scale in your life to say, I want to be a believer. I want to live for God. I want to be a Christian. Primary influencers. So what I'm asking you to do is look around and say, you know what? I might be a primary influencer in this person's life by uh, by relationship, positional. I may be an employer, a coach, a teacher. I I may be a best friend, but I realize that I'm probably a major influencer in their life. So think about the people in your world that you're probably a major influencer to them and realize what an awesome responsibility you have to influence them to live for the Lord. You're an influencer over them. This is the group that we should look to next. You know, occasionally someone is saved because a new acquaintance comes in their lives. God will do anything he has to to get people saved. And many times he will send new acquaintances that are a new voice, that have no previous history, to speak clear words that suddenly makes a big impact on your life. So it's not always parents. It's not always those best friends and key influencers. But sometimes it's brand new people that you haven't known. But somehow they came into your life and suddenly everything they said seemed to make sense. So I'm going to encourage you to be aware that God can take you to a new place and meet new people. And you can become the major factor in why they become a believer. The last category is more and more people today around the world are getting saved by via media. It's human beings, but they're not present. They're on the internet, they're on television, in some way, some form or fashion, they're influencing them, but they're not present. So I wanna ask you this, who can you influence in your life, though unpresent? Using the media, how can you be an influence? You know, I, I read Facebook and uh, follow along and make a post every now and then. Um, uh, at my age, it's not as big a deal as it would be to some younger people here today, but I value it and see the, see the importance of it, and I have to admit, I enjoy it more every day. So I, I, I read a lot of stuff on Facebook. 
uh, some really good stuff, some neutral stuff, some bad stuff, some advertisements, some political things. I mean, I, I read all that. But there's a few people that have, um, have endeared themselves to me. Like um, um, there's a, um, a horse friend up the country. And um, this lady that I don't know really well, but we're Facebook friends for whatever that's worth, her and her husband. And um, so I notice every day she puts a, a verse on, on her Facebook and makes like a one-line comment about that verse and how it blesses her. She's not talking about negative things. She's not talking about things that she's concerned about or worried about. She just puts a, like a verse of the day on there every day. And every time I, go, I, I, I look at her Facebook, she's got a fresh verse that directly applies to all of our lives. And I thought, you know what? She's found a way to be a blessing to people she, she's not even present with. So let me ask you, how can you be a blessing to people that you're not present with? That's what the power of media is, and realize what a blessing you can be in that way. So a moment ago, I asked you, who was the most instrumental person or persons um, in your life that, in, that um, helped you make the decision to be a Christian? I want to encourage you to love them, honor them, pray for them, and bless them, because they, they hold a very special place in your life. They may be with the Lord. They maybe live in some faraway place. They may go to another church, and you may not see them very often. But we should hold them in honor and respect because we might not be Christians today if those people had not exerted the right kind of influence on us. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to start over here, and I want you to stand up and name the person that most influenced you. Say something like this. My parents, so-and-so and so-and-so, they were the most influential person in my life. Or someone may say, I was in college and I had a roommate. Or somebody say, you know, I, was, uh, I had a teacher. Somebody else may say, a pastor. But I want to hear who was the person that most influenced you to live a Christian life. All right? Are you ready? All right, let's go. Stand up. I need some microphones. <clears throat> You don't, everybody doesn't have to do it. If you want to, I'd like to hear you do it. Go ahead, Ronnie. You do it, bud. Start right over there. My parents definitely had an impact on my life. My pa his parents, wonderful parents. It was my mother. Her mother. All right. Pass it around. Go over here. Go ahead, Jackie. All right, no, go ahead. Uh, my cousin, Michael. All right. My mother. D3. Yeah, turn it up. Try it again. It ain't on. All right, go over here. My best girlfriend that was living like I don't know what, and if God saved her, I knew he could save me. Thank God. Jackie saved me. Jackie just flat out saved him. Flat out saved him. That's all there is to it. My mother. All right, fantastic. My mother, Mary Davis. All right, my mother. Go over here, Karen. We can't get these microphones working. Not a one. All right. Somebody else speak out real loud. My sister Mary. Now Mary Fontenot sitting right there. God bless you. My daddy. My grandmother. My grandmother. See how much how family is important. Fifteen years ago, when my oldest child was born. Wow. 
Thank God, thank God. Get those men over there while you're there. All right? Big brother. My mom and dad. Mom and dad. All right. My, over here. My grandmother. Grandmother. How important are family members, right? The gospel spreads, spreads down the line of families. My mother and my grandfather. All right. A brother? My dad. My dad. My mom and dad who are pastors. All right. All right. Uh, my parents, but my grandfather played a very high role in me, serving the Lord. All right, fantastic. My mom, and mom and dad, of course. All right, thank the Lord, thank the Lord. On this side over here. Parents. My mother, Rebecca Marshall. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Both my parents. Both are parents. All right. My wife, Wendy, prayed me in. Your wife saved you too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank God for holy, spirit-filled wives, huh? My mother, Mary Weitzel, and my mother-in-law, Dorothy Pierce. You had great mothers in your life, didn't you? Thank God. My mother, Flora Walker. All right. My mother, Teresa Hall, and my grandmother, Leola Bridges. All right. Oh, my mom and daddy. My mom and dad. All right. All right. Go back there. Um, I had an uncle that took me in when I was 10 years old. His name's Mike Havard. Took me to church every Sunday. Thank God, thank God. My mama, Mama Deegan. All right, Mom Deegan. My mom and grandmother are my best friends. All right. My wife, Gina. All right, thank you, Jeannie. We're indebted to you, dear. <laughs> my mother, Norma Jean Smith. Thank God. My mom, Gertrude Smith, and when she left to be with the Lord, Stacy Fontenot. Stacy Fontenot. Yes. All right. I wasn't raised in church. Neither of my parents went. But I stumbled into a revival at 14. I don't really know how I got there. And it was through the anointed evangelist. That's right. Preaching the word. I heard about Jesus for the first time at 14. Wow. And I've never been the same. An evangelist. Thank God. Thank God. Wow. My parents, grandparents, and this woman right here. <laughs> my mother and my grandmother call. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. All right, go ahead. My brother, Alvin Broussard. Your brother, Alvin. God bless Alvin. My mother and her sister um, and their, her husband were pastors. Mm-hmm. My grandparents, my parents, and it took them all. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my mother, she's passed away now, but she was a, a great part of, of my life, and that's, that's why I'm here now. All right. And my beautiful mother right here. Thank the Lord. Uh, my mommy and daddy right there, Sandra and Mark. Yeah. Thank the Lord. God bless Parents them. and grandparents. All right. Go ahead. My, my wife, Patty. God bless you, dear. Well, it's, it took me watching Pat Barberson, and he got me in the church. Uh-huh. My brother David Stevens and his wife Monique. Thank the Lord. You see your brother, huh? My mom and dad gave me the foundation, but then halfway through our marriage, my husband stepped up. Your away. husband. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God. My mother, Lisa Calvin, and my great grandmother, Ella Hayes. Thank the Lord. My 
my dad, who was a pastor, preacher, and my mother's sister, who was God-filled. My mom, Walsh Taylor. Your mom, all right? My parents and grandparents. Parents and grandparents. My mother did, Sheila Fowler. Good. My parents, when I was 12 years old, moved to the right. family up above the Arctic Circle to be missionaries. My mom and dad, every Sunday we had to walk to church, uh, about right. five miles from church. But we always went every Sunday. God bless those precious people. Good. It was actually a next door neighbor when I was yeah. in the fifth grade, introduced me to the Lord. My aunt and uncle from Freeport, Louisiana, Rick and Shirley Corners. Mm-hmm. Our mother. Right here. <laughs> God bless you, mother. My parents, my good friend, Willie Stout, another um, co-worker, Dave Ellis, and my son, Gerald Dozier. Took a lot. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay, Ronnie. My parents was very influential in my life, but I don't want to forget the Sunday school teacher back when I was a child. A Sunday school teacher. Thank God. Thank the Lord. Well, thank God for all the people that helped us get to where we are today. So you can see that there's not going to be any souls in heaven without human fingerprints. Um, every once in a while you hear somebody say, how'd you get saved? Who influenced you? And they say, oh, it was just God. It was just the Holy Spirit. I'm like, you lying. Don't tell me that. Sure it was God. Surely it was the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was working through someone. What a, we spake, take a moment to bless all these great people. Most of them are not here today, but their memory is strong in our hearts. And we send a blessing to them and their families. If they're already with the Lord, may that blessing go to their living family in Jesus' name. So I want to be that kind of person. I hope that someone stands and calls my name someday. That maybe I lived a life and I said something that maybe influenced them to live for God. Of course, first of all is family. Secondly is going to be primary influencers in your life, close associates. And um, these are the important part of the world that you and I need to be looking into and uh, letting God use us in that way. Luke chapter 8, verse 39, there is the story of a demoniac. This is a man that was severely possessed by demons, and he lived virtually like a wild man in the tombs and in the wilderness. He could not live in a home. He was totally out of control. And when he saw Jesus, he came running to Jesus. Jesus miraculously delivered him. And when all the city came out to see the wild man of the Gadarenes, he was sitting clothed and in his right mind talking with Jesus. Well, you can imagine a man that had lived that kind of life would be looking for some new turf, some new geography, and a new start somewhere else. And so he's saying, Jesus, man, you've changed my life. I'm going with you. I want to hang with you. I want to travel with you. Wherever you go, I will go. Jesus said, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things God had done for him. I want you to notice this word house. In the Greek context, the word house was much more than we might use it here in America. 
When we talk about my house and your house, we're generally talking about our immediate family. But when you read the word house in the New Testament, it always is a much larger circle that includes the, the center of your world and your associates. For instance, there was, it's the word oikos, the Greek concept of house, and there were four groups of people that might be included in your oikos, and I want to show you these group of people on a slide. First of all, in your oikos, in your house, is your biological family and friends. Of course, that's the epicenter, and that's your first concern. Secondly would be your vocational who you work with, who you work for, who works for you, your associates and have whatever you do for a living. Look in your vocational world. Then you look at the geographical world. Who lives near you? Who do you interact with because you share space? Could be a neighbor or someone you meet at the store because it's the store on the corner where you always stop and purchase your gas and your bread. But it's a geographical connection. And if it wasn't for the geography that you share, you'd never know that person. So who's in your world geographically? And then finally, volitional. These are the people you choose to be friends with, you choose to interact with, you choose to relate to whomever they meet. Maybe your kids play ball, or maybe you're in some kind of a sporting yourself or a club or something else. But these are people you choose to be involved with. And this was the word house that Jesus referred to to the Gadarene. Your biological connections your vocational connections, your geographical connections, and these are your volitional connections, the people you choose to be in relationship with. This is your world. And Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, you and I are called to go into our world and share what Christ has done for us to our house. Remember, your testimony is still your greatest tool of evangelism. It's still the greatest thing you have going for you. Your testimony has no shelf life. It may have happened 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, but your testimony is still a powerful tool in winning men to Christ. What God has done for you thereafter is a great witness to others about the reality of God. Here's what I'd like for you to do. Take out your phone, or maybe you're taking notes, um, and, and write down biological, vocational, geographical, and volitional. And under each of those categories, just put a few names under those. Now, if you have a large family and most of them are saved, don't write down all the saved ones. Try to think about those that need an upgrade in their walk with God. And, and make a list of the people in your world, in your house, in your house that you need to, to be doing good things for, that you need to be praying for, that you need to be watching for opportunities to sow good seeds in their lives. So make a list, and uh, it gives you something to start with. It gives you a first step. It gives you something to pray about. You know, from time to time, God may send you across the water to some foreign nation, but those are exceptions. By and large, the world you interact with every day is the world that you and I are called to. I want to go to Mark chapter 1, verse 40, 41, and I'm going to move a little faster here. Mark chapter 1 is the story of where Jesus is ministering, and he has some people with the dreaded and incurable disease of leprosy that come to him uh, asking him for help. 
They had heard about the miracles. They had seen what he'd done for others. Leprosy is highly contagious. Uh, it virtually eats your extremities away. And because it's so contagious, you're exiled from uh, public life because you are so highly contagious. And it's completely incurable at this point in the history of the human race. And Jesus, then Jesus, as they come to him, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And of course, they were instantly and miraculously healed from leprosy. Now, I want you to look at these words. Then Jesus moved with compassion. This kind of terminology is not foreign to Jesus. This is not a unique verse. As a matter of fact, when you study the life of Jesus, you find out that over and over again, just prior to one of the great miracles of Jesus, we have a statement like this, Jesus was moved with compassion. When he saw the multitudes that had nothing to eat, the Bible said he had compassion on them. It seems that compassion was a spiritual trigger that resulted in the great miracles of Jesus. Every miracle seemed to be preceded by compassion in the heart of Jesus. And from these verses, I've concluded that anytime I am touched by compassion, when I am moved by compassion, it's a signal that God wants to use me at some level in some way, some form, or fashion. Jesus was moved with compassion. When is the last time you have been moved with compassion? I'm not talking about feeling pity for someone. I'm not talking about feeling sorry for someone. I'm not talking about a fleeting uh, sense of, ooh, that's bad, and move on with your life. But I'm talking about being moved by compassion. You see, when you're moved by compassion, you're moved to action. You're moved to do something. And there's a million scenarios of what you could be moved to do. Uh, prayer is certainly something that is the most powerful and something we can always do. We say dumb things like, well, all I can do is pray. Well, that may be all you can do. But remember, prayer is never little. It's never uh, small, but it's a big thing. The problem is we often say things like, well, I'll pray for you, but we forget. Yeah, we forget. We forget. And so uh, through the years, I've developed a habit. When people ask me to pray for them, I try to do it right on the spot. So if you meet me in Walmart and you ask me to pray for them, get ready. Because I'm honest enough to tell you that I'm, in, I'm asked to pray about a lot of things, and I forget them. Not because I'm stupid. I'm just kind of overwhelmed. I can't remember it all. So I get in prayer, and I can't remember all the people I saw at Walmart and CVS and phone calls and text messages and emails. I can't remember all that stuff. So when I receive a prayer request, I stop right then and file a petition with my father in their behalf. So I want to encourage you to pray immediately, wherever, just pray right then. Promising to pray is not praying and that has no results. So you got to stop and pray. Everybody say, let's pray. So wherever you are, whoever you're with, say, let's pray. I was in Sam's Wholesale Club. Renee had sent me in there something at the last minute, and I was racing down the aisles at Sam's trying to get it back to the house as fast as I could. And I met a precious couple in the church, and they had a terrible situation they needed prayer with. So I had to stop and listen to the story, but I was moved with compassion. And there we stand holding hands in Sam's, and I just start praying for them. 
You know the world's not intimidated by all their junk. They do their stuff in public. We're going to do our stuff in public. <clears throat> I like to think of myself as being a pretty cool guy. I don't ever get obnoxious. I pray in tongues all the time and everywhere I am. But when I'm in public, I don't pray in tongues a lot. I don't get obnoxious with all that. I don't see any value to that. But I'm not the least bit afraid to join hands and pray. People ask me to go to lunch and we talk about things. When we're done, I reach across the table and we pray right there in the table for as long as we need to pray. I'm not just talking about praying for the meal. That's good. But I'm talking about praying for whatever we've been talking about. You know, the point is, you've got to be moved with compassion, which means you get in action. When you're moved with compassion, you get in action. And my first reaction is always encouragement and prayer. So I want to just encourage you to say, you know what? If I'm moved with compassion, it means God wants to use me at some level. For the young man I spoke about that was getting out of prison, I was moved with compassion, and it cost me a new pair of boots for the boy. But I have an eternal seed sown in that family that the devil will never be able to take away. So I want to encourage you to see compassion in your heart as a, a supernatural sign, a trigger. That God wants to use you in some way. Go about doing good, loving and caring and sharing. And, and let, let your heart be moved with compassion. So, you know, I, I, on my phone, I have all these apps. And so I'm always getting the news all the time. And I'm sometimes overwhelmed with it. Because I have like five different news outlets that I monitor. And uh, I, I can cover more ground on my app than I can the television. I can read what I want to read instead of what they want me to read. And I can hear both sides of the story, and I feel like I kind of get a more complete picture of what's going on. But the point is, because of that, I know about a lot of tragedies happening all over the world that I used to wouldn't even have known ever happened. And sometimes I feel a little overwhelmed. My God, there's a lot of pain and suffering in this world. And, and truthfully, I, I can't wrap my arms around all the pain and suffering. I can't wrap my arms around it. And even locally here, we've got 2,300 homes in Orange County that were flooded just last week. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of compassion to get your arms around. So I'm not telling you that I can wrap my arms of compassion around every problem everybody's got in all the churches and all over town and all over America and all over the world. I mean, there's just not enough for me to go around. But I can cover a lot. I can do something. I'm moved with compassion. I can embrace it. Like I can't go into intercession, deep intercession over every member of Triumph Church. There's thousands of us. I can't do that. But I have some. And those that are brought to me. And those that the Holy Spirit puts on me. And I'm moved by compassion. And the other night I was interceding for a member of the church. A family going through some stuff. The Spirit just came upon me. And I just interceded and prayed over that family. Be moved with compassion. You can't be compassion, wrap your arms around all the hurt and pain in the whole world. But can you wrap it around anybody? Are you moved by anyone? Does it matter anymore? 
the constant hammering of our, of our ever-present news about this tragedy and this heartache and this death and this sickness and this terrorism act and this murder. I mean, after a while, you can just become just hardened to all of that. And pretty soon, Pastor, you're not moved by anyone because you've just kind of got your defenses up. How many of you felt overwhelmed by all the tragedies in the world? Just feel overwhelmed by it. You put your barrier up, and pretty soon you're not moved by anything. I don't want to be not moved by anything. I want to be as moved as I can for as many as I can. Moved by compassion. It drove the ministry of Jesus. Daniel 12 and 1. i got to keep moving. All right, this is the, one of Daniel's great visions of the end time. And he said I, he sees the future that has not even happened yet, even though Daniel lived hundreds of years before Christ. Now Christ is, is 2,000 years removed, and it still hasn't come to pass. He saw the future. Listen to what it says. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. That'd be one of the archangels of God. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. And if you know the history of the world, there's been some trouble on this planet in the history of the nations. But there is coming a time when there's going to be trouble on this planet that is greatly going to supersede anything this planet has ever seen, the scale is going to change. And that's the time of the end. No one that reads the Bible believes that the world just gets better and better and suddenly we arrive at heaven. No, no, the world crashes. And there's going to be a time of trouble like the world has never seen. Then he goes on to say, even at that time and at that time your people shall be delivered thank God our people God's people are going to be delivered everyone who's found written in the book God's got a book it's the roll call of the faithful it's his personal database of all of his children and he knows who belong to him and who doesn't belong to him everybody's not saved everybody's not a child of God Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's the great resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, is your name written in the book? If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ and committed yourself to him, your name's not in his book. You got to get saved to get your name in the book. You're not born with your name in the book. Your name goes in the book when you submit your heart and life to Jesus and you become a Christian. That's when your name gets in the book. And and at the end of time, he's going to look in his book and find out who belongs to him and who doesn't. So ask yourself the question, is my name in his book? And then he goes on to say that those that are wise and those that turn many to righteousness, those that influence people to be Christian, those that influence people toward the Lord, he said they're going to shine as stars forever and ever. You know the church has stars. 
No, it's not your favorite television evangelist or your favorite author or your favorite worship leaders, but the stars in the kingdom of God are those that we, whose names we called just a few moments ago that were the influencers of your life that influence you to be a child of God. Those are the real stars in the kingdom of God. And Daniel said those that live that kind of life and have that kind of impact, they're going to shine like the stars forever and ever. Those are the real stars stars in the kingdom of heaven. How many of you want to be a star in the kingdom of God? Now he talks about the the resurrection. And the truth is, every person that's ever lived on this planet is going to be resurrected. There's the first resurrection and the general resurrection, which is the second. The first resurrection are those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, and the second resurrection... There's everybody else. And some are going to experience a resurrection, and they're going to be resurrected to eternal life. More wonderful, more blessed, more glorious than you and I in our human mind can, can comprehend right now. But God has wonderful things in store for His children. But for the rest, it's going to be everlasting shame and contempt. So some pe- everybody's going to be resurrected. Some are going to go to heaven, as we say, and some are not. So everybody's not saved. Everybody doesn't go to heaven. Just because you're an American doesn't mean you're saved. Just because your parents were Christians doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because we live in uh, what has been called a Christian nation, that's under question now, of course, but it doesn't mean we're all saved. Not everybody's going to be saved. Not everybody's going to be resurrected to eternal life. Some people are going to miss the plane. They're not going anywhere. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. Do you realize we know more about hell from what Jesus said than all the other writers combined? Jesus talked about heaven, but he talked about hell a lot more. And the reason he did, because he didn't want anybody to go. The sinful and the unbelieving are sent to hell. Let me show you Revelations 21 and uh, 6 through 8. And I've got to speed up. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of waters of life freely to him who thirsts. 7. He overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my people. Verse 8. But. The cowardly. You know, there's a lot of people be Christians today, but they're chicken. They're just cowards. Murderers, uh, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immorality. That's a plethora of sexual issues. Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, this is. This is the ultimate end of millions of human beings that have lived on this planet. They're not going to be saved, and they're going to go to the lake of fire. Now, if you believe that, or you might as well throw your Bible away. Because the Bible is no more plain about anything in the Bible than it is heaven and hell. We know much more about hell than we do heaven, and it's because God doesn't want anybody to go there. Why is it that Americans don't really believe in hell anymore? Like, when's the last time that you look around and said, you know what, 
I'm not sure anybody really believes that people will go to hell. Why is that? First of all, here in America, the Bible has become a myth, an irrelevant book that was mostly created by Christians for Christians and has no real pertinence to us today. The Bible is not God's Word, and His Word is not the final word. You see, when we get away from building our concepts of right or wrong off the Scripture, we're in trouble. And that's what America is doing. Secondly, our diminished, we have a diminished faith in a God, our Heavenly Father, that is our Creator, whom we are accountable to. See, if you just wipe out God who gave us our rights, who gave us all the blessings, who gave us America, who gave us everything we love and cherish, when you take Creator out of it, you're not accountable to anybody. You don't have to answer anybody. You don't have to be thankful to anybody. You don't have to listen to anybody. You just take the Creator right out of it and believe we all just sort of happened somehow. We've also erased the concept of sin, right and wrong, good and evil. Every man is doing right, that which is right in his own eyes. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Who do you think you are? Well, we're not judging anybody. We're just saying what the law, God's law says. He's the judge. We're just reading the law. It's helpful for people to know what the law is before they break it. It's helpful to people to know what the law is so they'll know which side to get on. But people, if you, don't, if you don't believe in the law of God, the word of God that teaches us right and wrong, then people just do whatever they want to do. So we've erased the concept of sin and we dare anyone to accuse us of sin. Every man is doing what's right in his own life. Many believe that God is all love, that he will not hold man accountable for his behavior, his action, and they have no concept that we serve a God of justice and a God of wrath. You know, the church has done a good job of preaching the love of Jesus, but we've stopped preaching the wrath of God, the justice of God. And so most Americans do not believe that anyone will go to hell because people don't deserve it. They're not that bad. Everybody's really good. And we're all going to heaven. And so altar invitations are mostly self-improvement invitations. They're, they're self-help. You want to live a better life. You want to be healthier, happier, wealthier, better marriage. Then come to Jesus and he'll give you a better life. But salvation doesn't start with trying to get your life better. Salvation starts with being cleansed of your sins and forgiven for unrighteousness. That's where salvation starts at. And so many people don't believe in hell anymore because they think that hell is just too bad and people do not deserve it. I was asked one time, preacher, the worst enemy you have, the most wicked person you know on this planet, some mass murderer, rapist, or child abuser, would you put them in hell? I'm like, hmm, well, mm, I, I, maybe, I don't know. I, because I really can't comprehend the full wrath of God. I just I can't wrap my hands around, my arms around, my mind around hell. But let me tell you something. I can't wrap my mind around the love of God either. I can't wrap my mind around a God that sent his son to die for our salvation. I, I, I can't get on the same level with God whether you want to talk about love or wrath. I, forgiveness or, or justice. I can't wrap my mind around either one. God is so much bigger than me. I, I can't love like he loved. I can't hate like he hates. I can't forgive like he forgives. And I probably couldn't punish like he forgives, like he punishes. So I just can't go there. All I know is what the Bible says. Read it, believe it, expect it. See, if you don't really believe people are going to hell, 
that are not following Jesus, then soul winning is kind of an obligation, a duty. And intercession, just kind of mechanical, you know, it's no big deal. And the only hope I have of anybody really getting involved in winning people to Christ is just put them on a guilt trip. Put you on a guilt trip and then maybe you'll start being concerned about people around you. But you see, when you start seeing people around you that are not believers on their way to an eternity without God, a lake of fire and brimstone that burns forever and ever, it puts a little different context. And the people in your life, your family, when you realize that as much as I love them, as much as I pray for them, if I cannot somehow with the Holy Spirit bring them to a point of salvation, they're going to be lost. They're not going to be saved. It gets a little more serious when you believe in hell. It gets a little more serious when you really believe that people that are not saved are going to hell. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. It's ripe. But the laborers are few.